I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Love Letters is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. In 1962, Roz Louie was in her junior year of college at the University of Miami. One night, she went on a blind date with an aspiring doctor named John. The date went well. She and John hit it off. There was just one problem. John was in the Air Force and about to ship out to Alaska, some 4,000 miles away. But their connection managed to survive this great distance. That's because Roz and John got really good at writing back and forth. There were periods of time when letters were very important and we learned a lot about each other because we'd only had one date. At one point, John was sent to a remote island in the Aleutians called Shemya, pretty close to Russia. There was a dentist, a priest, and a doctor on this island, I think for 500 men doing very secret work. And the Jesuit priest said, you know, the only way you're going to keep your sanity, John, is for you to letter tape. And that's how we began the letter taping back and forth. Letter taping, meaning John would record letters on mini audio cassettes and then mail them to Roz. Roz would tape over his letters with her own letters and send the cassettes back. For Roz, these exchanges with John were proof of how magical the written word could be, how you could fall in love with someone, their wit, their manner, their whole story, all through writing. Sure, romantic dinners and sunset strolls and conventional courtship were nice and everything, but sometimes a well-crafted letter was all it took. From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. I don't really buy it when people say, oh, love only comes to you when you're not looking. You know, it'll happen when you stop trying. If I've learned anything, it's that finding love and then sustaining it takes real work. It takes intention. But I do think it's true that we don't know, that we can't know, when life is going to throw someone important in front of us. Call it chance, or fate, or maybe God. Call it whatever you want. When these moments come they force us to confront a big question. Is my heart open to love, or is it not? Today's story is all about that. Being open, remaining open, across six decades, multiple states, one bowl of pea soup, 
and a whole lot of letters. It begins with that blind date between Roz and John in the early 1960s. It ends somewhere quite different. Let me start by telling you a little bit more about Roz, who lives part of the year in the Boston area, the warm part. Hi, my name is Roz Louie. I am 81 years old, and I guess I would call myself a snowbird. I live six months of the year in Cambridge and six months of the year in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. Roz grew up in a middle-class family in St. Louis. She was the oldest of three girls. I was the babysitter of my younger sisters for a good part of the time, but had a very normal, I would say, childhood. And because my parents were fairly cultured, introduced us to a lot of music and dance and theater. And so I'd say that our growing up years were very rich. At 12, her family relocates to Jacksonville, Florida. It's a major culture shock. So after high school she decides to return to her home state for college at the University of Missouri. Two years later, Roz comes back to Florida. She transfers to the University of Miami, where she earns a degree in education with plans to become a teacher. What did you think about your adult relationship life and what it would look like? Did you assume you'd be married? Did you assume children? There was sort of a pattern, a predetermined pattern for girls during that period of time. And so I assumed that I would teach and raise a family and be a happy product of the 50s. This is when John comes into the picture. There's one thing I haven't told you about Roz. When she and John go on that blind date, she's actually seeing someone else. But at what point did you break up with the person you were dating and become more involved in this? I think at this point I might have been sort of burning the candle on both ends. Solid. (laughs) (laughs) Roz finds herself increasingly taken with John. A fresh letter from Alaska is a thrilling sight in her mailbox. When he's granted leave from the Air Force Base, John goes to Chicago, where he'd grown up, to visit his family. He asks Roz to fly up and meet him there, which she does. She stays at his family home, appropriately chaperoned, of course. Then our relationship fast forward in a very quick way, and before he left to return 10 days later, we were engaged He actually was able to fly down to Florida and meet my parents and have a little celebration of that moment. And then he left for Alaska and did not return until the Friday night before we were married, seven months later. Wow. Mm -hmm. So it really was a long-distance communication. What was it about him that made you know, okay, I want to do this? John was a very intelligent, perceptive handsome young man who already sort of had everything organized and in place in his life. And he knew that that he wanted to be a pediatrician. And so he really had a, a plan, a really serious plan. And at the same time, there was such a huge sense of compassion to him and his sensitivity. So I think if I had to say one of the major things that drew me to John was a sense of respect. 
Beyond the letters, Roz is able to talk to John on the phone from Alaska from time to time, thanks to ham radio, but under certain conditions. Like, they could only talk at 9 p.m., Alaska time, which falls in the middle of the night in Florida. I slept with a telephone under my bed because I shared a bedroom with my sister in twin beds. And so when the phone rang, of course, I immediately was able to walk out of the room with a telephone in the middle of the night so the family was not disturbed. Ross and John get married in June of 1963 in Miami. They honeymoon in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Roz then flies back with John to Anchorage, Alaska, for him to complete his Air Force service. Anchorage is a huge adjustment. It's thousands of miles from anyone Roz knows. And it feels like a frontier town with wooden planks for sidewalks. The house they're staying in has blackout curtains. Why? Because of the 20-plus hours of daylight around the summer solstice in June. Even the produce is weird natural Alaskan strawberries that were the size of tomatoes and tomatoes that were the size of huge apples because there's so much water in the soil with the long periods of darkness and then the long periods of sunlight. After John completes his service, he and Roz hop in a green 1955 Pontiac and drive the Alcan Highway from Alaska through Canada, all the way back to Chicago. That's where John resumes his medical residency in pediatrics. Roz starts her teaching career at an area high school. For the next decade, their life resembles that post-war domestic tableau Roz had imagined. They have two kids, a girl and a boy. They're back and forth from Chicago to New York as their careers blossom. John in medicine, Roz teaching high school English. I know marriages are complicated and nuanced and not always 100% perfect, but you had a happy marriage. Yes, absolutely. A very interesting and happy marriage. And truly, there are always bumps in the road, but we had this, I would say, a very honest communication between us. And we, I think, we appreciated and respected each other for our strengths and our weaknesses. Now imagine that montage in the movies of a busy, happy family life. A big move to New Orleans when John takes a job at Tulane University. Lots of professional changes and accomplishments for both of them. The kids growing up and moving out. And then finally, the prospect of a long and happy retirement. They buy a condo in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. They expect to have many years traveling, playing golf and bridge, and just enjoying one another's company. All those plans suddenly change in April of 2007. Shortly before his 72nd birthday, John has surgery at Tulane. John and Roz rent a condo in the French Quarter, thinking he can recover there before they make the move to Florida. But 10 days into his recovery, John dies of a pulmonary embolism, a complication from the surgery. John's death was, was a shock because he was a very healthy 
71-year-old man, prime of his life, I would have to say, or the continuing prime of his life, but very healthy. It really brought his colleagues from all over the world to honor him in a memorial service that was held in the auditorium at Tulane. And it was filled beyond capacity. People were sitting in the aisles. It was really an honor. Roz is barely 65 at this point. Her son and daughter help her move to the condo in Palm Beach Gardens, where she does have some friends. But her future looks very different from how she'd imagined it. Once everyone left, and I remember it was Memorial Day, it was in May, and I was alone, I then began these sort of daily walks, twice a day, around this beautiful gated community, and um, had my own personal sort of conversations, and realized that I was grateful, on the one hand, that John had died without suffering, and that he had died without having a heavy burden to deal with in an illness. Roz has her friends and her supportive children, yes. But more than anything, it's her self-reliance and independence that get her through. I remember people saying to me, don't you want to go to a group discussion? Don't you want to talk to someone? Don't you want to have some counseling? And I remember feeling that I, I needed to sort through all of this myself. And I think probably uh, I've always been accused, of course, being the oldest of three daughters and my sister saying, oh, you're so strong, oh, you're so this, oh, you're so that, oh, you're going to take charge, oh, blah, blah, blah. I think that there might really have been some essence of that truth in me because I felt strong enough to be able in time to move through these various phases. I think I was angry for a period of time that John died, but having no regrets that I was there with him to the very end. And he was very conscious knowing that something was wrong. And it was sort of a, a shocking closure, but a sense of closure. So I didn't have a lot of regrets other than a sense of loss. Roz embraces her widowhood as best she can, and she gets pretty good at it. But her story doesn't end there. There's a lot left to right. More after this quick break. Okay, we're back. So after some time passes, Roz's friends start gently asking her, would you consider dating again? Is that something you might want? At one point, Roz is on a trip with some friends to Maine. We were in a group of people, and, and someone whom they the friends knew said, you know, Roz, I, I know a really nice gentleman I'd love you to meet. He, I think you and he would enjoy keeping company. And I remember bursting into tears and thinking, oh, no, I feel as though I had a soulmate. I'm not looking for love. I'm not looking for companionship. There were moments when I was lonely, but I would have to say honestly that I'm not a person who needs to be constantly in a social environment. I'm not a loner by any stretch of the measure of expression, but I don't mind my own company. (music) 
I think it's Whoopi Goldberg who once said something about, I don't want some man in my house, right? Where you get into, you get used to living alone and you get used to your own routines. And I imagine it also might have been daunting to think, well, what would it be like to have someone new be around? I didn't have a sense of longing for that. It's hard to describe. And I don't want to sound as though I am so consumed with myself, except that I just was in a kind of comfortable place. And yes, of course, there are all those quotes and jokes and lines about a nurse with a purse and a this and a that. And do I want to think about another relationship where, in fact, I might be the caregiver? And do I want to be sure that someone isn't just wanting to be connected to me because I, quote, was an independent woman? Roz does do some dating in her mid-70s. She sees an old friend from college on and off for about a year, but it doesn't turn into anything serious. And then in 2017, something big happens. Roz's daughter, Karen, who's an attorney in the Boston area, casually mentions that she has this new client. He's an older man who reminds Karen of her late father, John. And I was delighted. I was really happy that she could find this kind of connection because grieving for a daughter who loses a father is tough. And and we went through many years of this and I trying to support her through this. So I knew that this was meaningful and I was very happy about it. The following summer, in 2018, Roz is in the Boston area visiting Karen and her family. And Karen said, you remember I told you about this man who was recently widowed and reminds me of dad? Well, I've done some work for him, and he'd like to take me out to lunch. And I told him I really couldn't this week because you were here. And he said, well, why don't you bring your mom along? And so I was thinking, well, this is this lovely man that Karen really relates to. Uh, Certainly, I said to her, if you'd like me to come, I'll come. Did you have any sense that this was like a setup or just zero? I was just coming along with her to meet him because this was something that he would like to do for her and I just happened to be here. And so that was, at least in my thinking, absolutely was not a setup at all. There's this exhibit on Impressionism at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Karen gets tickets for the three of them. Karen, Roz, and this man, whose name is Ralph. Well, the exhibit was lovely, and Ralph was a very attractive man and very warm and pleasant, and we, three of us, moved about the exhibit. Ralph would talk to Karen about a painting, and then he walked over, and he and I talked about a painting, and then I talked about a painting with Karen, so it was very easy. Afterward, they have lunch at a cafe in the museum. Roz orders the pea soup. So when we sat down to lunch, I said to Ralph, are you from Boston? And he said, oh, no, I'm, I'm from a, a small town in the Midwest near St. Louis. And I said, really, I'm from St. Louis. And then I said, although I moved away when I was young, but I, I consider that my roots without question. And so then we began to talk about some things that were in common. It turns out that Ralph had lost his wife of 52 years just the year before, in 2017. As we were saying goodbye, I turned to Ralph and I said, you know, I've been a widow for 11 years, and I can tell you that the journey is difficult, 
But as a man, very soon, if you haven't already, you are going to be offered the casserole brigade. And these ladies who want to bring you a casserole don't even want the casserole back. So it will be much easier for you when you are ready, Ralph, to find a companion or to find someone. It's just so much easier for a man than it is for a woman. And he said, oh, I'm really not interested in that at all. You know, and so then we parted with a sort of have a nice life and off we went. That night, Ralph sends an email to Roz's daughter, Karen, thanking her for lunch. It goes something like this. Hello, Karen. It has gotten late, and in all likelihood, you and your mother have already entered dreamland. Bedtime beckons me, too, but I wanted to have a moment to recap my day, and I want you to know how memorable it was. Having your mother with us really enhanced the conversation. Extend my best wishes to Rosalind for a safe and comfortable trip back to her home. It would be a pleasure to see her again, perhaps on a future trip to Boston. I'm closing this day smiling. Ralph. Roz says to Karen, give me Ralph's email address. I'd like to write a quick note back to him. So I wrote back one of those cordial kinds of lovely to meet you. Good luck. He told me he was going on a a long drive, like a thousand miles back to his roots for a reunion. He was looking forward to seeing Ralph. Thank you for lunch. It was nice meeting you yesterday and realizing the extraordinary coincidences of life's chapters that kept surprisingly occurring during our lunch conversation. I am so delighted to know of your relationship with Karen and to know how much she admires you and to observe your appreciation of her. I envy your nostalgic road trip and am guessing memories will abound. Travel well and enjoy the moments. Roz. Thus begins a long-running email exchange between Roz and Ralph, two people who had lost a partner they planned to be with forever, two people who never anticipated finding love again. So I said to him, I think that I have become a pen pal. We have now a pen pal relationship. And these emails then also reminded me of how I wrote letters to John and how many aspects and characteristics of Ralph reminded me of John. Just like with John in the early 60s, Roz learns a lot about Ralph from their correspondence, how he'd grown up on a farm and studied architecture, how he'd been a designer on the World Trade Center in New York, how he was an artist who loved cartooning, how devoted he'd been to his wife, his son, and his two granddaughters. Roz comes back up to Boston for Thanksgiving of 2018. On the Tuesday night before the holiday, she meets Ralph for dinner at a small Italian restaurant in Cambridge where he lives. They talk for three hours. Afterward, their relationship continues to deepen through their notes back and forth. To Ralph. In a mind-boggling moment, I realized that you, Ralph, are a Renaissance man. As I reread, with less emotion and more rational thinking, your yesterday's email, it was clear to me that you wrote touchingly about Bach, expressed the meaningful effect of opera, reflected about the Beatles' lyrics, acknowledged a Broadway moment, 
discussed your rationale of culinary gift selection and your extraordinary list of personal achievements. But can you dance? Your humbled favorite pen pal. Good morning, Roz. You are so gracious in judging what I am. I'm more grateful than you can imagine. Notwithstanding, for truth and balance, I have to tell you that I'm still rough around the edges. I'm pleased to have had my rural upbringing, but I continue to learn about the elements of cultural richness and take pleasure in exploring the unfamiliar. Can I dance? Yes, in a manner of speaking and a manner of movement, but I'm not into today's fast-moving physical style of living the rhythm. It's around this time that Roz makes a bold suggestion. I said, you know, you really ought to think about getting out of the cold. Maybe you ought to come down to Florida for a visit. There are lovely hotels around. It would be very convenient. Or I have a guest room, so not be a problem. I mean, there was really a sense of propriety and respect from the beginning. But when you were like, come visit me, I have a guest room, what percentage of your brain was like, and maybe romance. If I had to put a quantifiable number on it, maybe 30%. Ralph decides that, yes, he would like to visit her in Florida. He came down for a few days, and we had this lovely time. I showed him around. We talked at great length. He went back. We continued our communication Um, And I decided that no one was going to know that he was there on that first trip because I didn't want all of these ladies and all of these other people discussing something that wasn't. What did Karen say? I don't know that I asked Karen. She knew that we were communicating. She knew that there were emails. She knew when I stayed with her that there would be a phone call at a certain time in the evening. and, And as she described it, I would go into the bedroom like a teenager and have this conversation. It's very interesting how... Roles reverse. And then some time passed and he said, I'm thinking um, that I might like to come down and visit again. And that happened some months later. And then when I came up, it was clear that I was going to spend time with Karen, with him in the summer, and then on more time with him in his home and more of a comfortable kind of growing relationship. Time was passing, and we weren't young with a lot of time to plan, so we decided to share our time together. Their connection is clear, but there are some things to consider. First, Ralph has to work through what a new relationship would mean in terms of his loyalty to his late wife. Also, he and Roz come from different religious backgrounds. She's Jewish, and his Christian faith is really important to him. At what point is it clear to both of you this is a romantic relationship? Let's acknowledge this. I don't know that I can be specific about a date. I would say that um, after his second visit, it was clear that there was more to this than just being a pen pal. The signs of romance were very clearly there. In 2019, Roz and Ralph travel to see her granddaughter perform in Summerstock in Indiana. They also visit New York City together. 
By the time the pandemic hits, in the spring of 2020, they are living together at Ralph's place in Cambridge, with Karen delivering their groceries. And we stayed healthy, and we were together together without going anywhere for months at a time, and it was not a problem. It was fun. It was easy. In September of 2020, Roz and Ralph have a commitment ceremony with immediate family at Ralph's church. At this stage of your life, you know, you really can't or you shouldn't not be yourself. And things just sort of came together in a comfortable way. And we didn't have to be, because we were two independent people, we didn't have to be constantly together every hour of the day doing things together. I could read, I could knit, I could be in touch with things by Zoom. Ralph could do his projects. So it was a comfortable, just natural kind of being together. These days, Roz and Ralph are enjoying being out in the world together. They visit museums and restaurants. They take long drives. They go to Tanglewood, the summer home of the Boston Symphony Orchestra in the Berkshires. And they still pursue their own interests. I think we compatibly joined our independence. I would say that that's part of this gift we feel we have been given. This ability to remain ourselves and not compromise in what are priorities and what are feel-good things and being there for each other. There are so many ways to feel safe by saying no to possible change. And I wonder what it is about you or the experiences you've had that, that made it possible to be open to this. I do think that part of this rich next chapter in our lives was because we were open and we were accessible. When you certainly reach a point where you accept yourself, and you know you aren't perfect, and you have to live a lot of years and get a lot of wisdom in order to reach that point. If you then are open, and you happen to be fortunate enough to meet someone who is exactly that kind of way as well, then never becomes a no-no word. Of course, I had to ask Ralph, what makes a good love letter? I would say, have a romantic attitude. Always think in terms of the pleasure one provides. Take the more sweet, precious thoughts that you have and use them when you can, when it's, when it's appropriate. Being with Roz is constantly a delight. And when we are in private, it's particularly sweet. Maybe it's still early enough in our life that it's still fresh when we do things together or see each other. We've only been four years or so, uh, and we're hopeful that it's going to go many more years. Our job, I guess, is to keep the, uh, the love alive. Thank you so much, Ralph. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you so much, Roz. Thank you, Meredith. Thank you for the opportunity to share the moment. You can read more about Roz and Ralph's story in a book they've co-written called Beyond Beyond, A Chance Encounter, A Digital Courtship, and The Language of Love. Find it in bookstores and online. This heart has wings. 
is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Today's episode was produced by Jesse Remedios and Scott Hellman. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Devin Smith and Maddie Mortel do our audience engagement. Love Letters illustrations by Ashanti Davis. Check them out on the Love Letters Instagram. Special thanks to Brian McGorry and Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. And if you like the show, please follow us on Apple Podcasts. You can always send us a letter. We are an advice column to loveletters at boston.com. We're online at loveletters.show. I believe in apps and I believe in the internet being able to help people find love. But I'm not surprised that so many people found love during COVID because they were forced to sort of have a Zoom date, take a walk, send an email. And I think there seems to be a speed that doesn't work for truly seeing someone. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening. These hard heads.